All right, let's pray. Lord, you are a great and holy God, um, and you alone are worthy of honor and glory and praise, for you have done wondrous things. Uh, you have created the heavens and, earth, and the earth and all that is in them, um, and you have created us in your image um, to be your likeness um, and to be as lights in this world um, as your church. Um, and in order to do this, you have prepared a way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Um, he has lived a life of perfect obedience, and he has bled and died for us that our sins might be forgiven. Um, and for all of these things, we praise your name. We praise you because you alone are worthy. You alone have done these wondrous things. Uh, this morning we come before you and we ask that you would bless your word. Um, grant that we may know you and that we may love you more through seeing you in your word. Um, I pray that the words that I speak this morning would be uh, directed by you, that they would not be merely my own words and my own thoughts, but they would come from your word and that they would be your words to this people here and now. This we pray in your holy name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, this morning is the first sermon in a new series. Um, we're going into a new series called Dear Church. Um, and this series is all about the letters in Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3, that Jesus Christ sends to his church. Uh, that is going to be the focus of this series. Um, today, however, we have the introduction. Um, and what I want to do is I want to give you a sermon in two sections. Uh, in the first section, uh, I'm going to look at a piece of scripture from Revelation chapter 1. Um, and then we're going to have communion. And then after that, I'm going to go on to talk about these letters that Jesus Christ sends to his church. Um, and I want to make some observations generally about them without kind of trampling on the toes of the speakers that are to come. I don't want to cover um, ground that they'd perhaps like to take up themselves. So that's where we're headed. Um, and that's what we have in store for today. So as I said, I'd like to start with a passage from Revelation 1. Um, and that passage is this, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Um, now you might ask, you know, we're doing a series in Revelation 2 and 3. Why this scripture? Why this passage today? Um, and I think it's helpful um, to introduce scripture in the way that the Bible itself introduces it. You know, I could come and give you any kind of introduction I wanted to what we're studying. Uh, but this is the introduction that the Bible itself gives to the book of Revelation. And so I think it's helpful <clears throat> and indeed safe for us to look at this. Um, so that's what we're going to do this morning. <clears throat> so I'll start by just reading it. Uh, revelation 1, verses 1 to 6. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to God, to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Right, this is the opening to the book of Revelation. Um, and there's a few points I'd like to discuss from these uh, passages. A few points that will help give us some context um, and a bit of background to what follows in the book. Um, and the first point I'd like to make is this. This is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, and it's the revelation of Jesus Christ for at least two reasons. And the first reason we can see is that God gave this to Jesus Christ. And so it properly belongs to him. It's a revelation that God gave to Jesus Christ. And now Jesus Christ is passing on and giving to his church through his servant John. So that's one reason why this is the revelation of Christ. And in the second place, it's a revelation of Christ because it reveals to us something about him, something about his workings in the world, something about who he is and what he does in the world at large and also in our lives. It reveals to us Jesus Christ. And that's important to bear in mind as we go on into looking at these letters. These letters are a revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, they talk about things that are happening in our lives. Yes, they talk about things that are happening in the church. But they also talk about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they reveal something of him to us. The second point I wanted to make is that this revelation was given to John. Um, so you might be wondering, who is this John? Uh, there are, after all, a number of Johns in the Bible. Um, there's John the Baptist, um, but this is not who we're talking about today. Um, we are talking about John the Apostle, one of Jesus' disciples. Um, he is part of the inner crowd, one of the perhaps foremost among Jesus' disciples, and he had a long experience with Jesus ministering with him in his earth, earthly life. He knew him personally. He was a close friend and a disciple of Jesus. And so that is the John who Jesus revealed this to. However, this comes late in John's life. Revelation is late in church history compared to the other scriptures. It is the last book to be written in the Bible. At this point, all of the other scriptures have been written, and now John receives this revelation from Jesus Christ, and John writes it down for the church. This is the last book. And so at this point, John has had a whole life of ministry, a whole life of service behind him. He is old and experienced. And all through his life, he has been a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus says he gave it to his servant, John. As I was saying, this is the last book to be written. Um, and therefore, the writing of Revelation coincides with a sort of shift in the life of the church. You know, up until this point, the church hadn't had a complete scripture. You know, the word of the Lord was still being written down, and God would often speak to them through prophecies, through prophets, and primarily through his apostles who wrote the scriptures. These were the servants of God. But at this point, the canon is coming to a close. The scriptures are being finalized. And so we can expect something of a change in the way that the church runs day to day. We can expect perhaps there'll be something less of the prophetic elements in the church, something less of those things, and more reliance on this concrete word of God which is now closed. 
So the writing of Revelation also comes at this kind of turning point in the early church. We now have a completed scripture, a closed canon. You see, in a lot of ways, church history can, can, can be compared to something like a building. Uh, you might want to imagine you know, a house, perhaps the one you live in, or maybe even a tall skyscraper. You see, these buildings have a foundation, and on that foundation is built the rest of the superstructure. You've got the walls, you've got the ceilings, and all the workings of the building. Um, but the point is, the foundation is not the same as the rest of the building. The rest of the building is built on that foundation. And this is kind of like the way history has developed in the church. Now, this is a very biblical picture. Uh, in Ephesians 2, 19 to 21, it says this, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You see, the idea here is that the apostles and the prophets form a foundation for us as a church and that we are built upon that foundation. We are being built together into this temple of God. And we can expect there to be some differences between the foundation and between the superstructure. And one of the key differences is that after that foundational period with the apostles and prophets, we have a completed scripture. The Bible is now complete. And we have the full revelation of God in writing. And that's important to understand as we tackle Revelation because the, the writing of Revelation kind of coincides with kind of a shift towards that change. Also notice that there is a blessing for he who reads aloud, he who hears, and he who keeps the word. You know, Revelation, in one sense, stands alone in giving this blessing at the start for those who pay attention to the words written here. Uh, but in another sense, this is not unparalleled in the Bible and not unprecedented. Uh, the Bible often tells that those who pay attention to the word of God are blessed. Uh, in Matthew 7:24, for example, Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then, of course, we have such scriptures as Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You see, Revelation and giving this blessing for those who pay attention to this prophecy, pay attention to the words of this book, is in keeping with Scripture. It is in keeping with this idea that the Word of God is of such vital importance in our lives that we cannot help but be blessed when we give attention to it, when we pay attention, and not only pay attention, but we actually practice what it speaks about. The next point I'd like to make is quite simple. Notice that <clears throat> grace and peace comes from God. In the benediction, John says, grace and peace to you from God. And he mentions all the persons of the Trinity. Look at verse 4. It says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now that's referring to the Father. 
and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That is referring to the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. That is referring to the Son. Now, some of you may be thinking it's a little cryptic when you say, you know, the seven spirits before the throne, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Um, And you're right, it is. It is a little bit cryptic. Um, But the key piece of information is this. Often when the Bible talks about the number seven, it is referring to this idea of completeness or fullness. Um, In English, we have words that sound the same but can mean very different things, don't we? I think the classic example would be something like the word date. In this case, it's the same word, but it has many different meanings. You know, I could be talking about Christmas and say, you know, I had a wonderful sticky date pudding, and you'd all know what I meant. Um, On the other hand, I could say, oh, look at that calendar. On such and such a date, this is going to happen. And we'd know that that meaning is very different from the former meaning. One's a date on a calendar, one's a delicious type of fruit, I think. Um, (laughs) Or I could also say, I'm going on some kind of romantic outing, and we call that a date. You know, we have words that mean different things, although they sound the same. Um, And the same is true in the Hebrew language. Um, And in the Hebrew language, the word for seven sounds and looks a lot like the word for full or complete. Um, So that's where this kind of analogy comes from, and why the word, the number seven, is often used in that sense of fullness or completeness. So in this passage, uh, when we talk about the seven spirits, the idea is that the spirit is full and complete. It's a full and perfect spirit. Um, I know a lot of commentators also think this might be referring to passages in the Old Testament which list seven attributes of the spirit of the God. Um, But it seems that everyone is in agreement that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit in figurative language. So we have a mention of all the persons of the Trinity in this passage. Uh, But John brings this to a focus in looking at the Son, in looking at Jesus Christ. Um, Now, I think he says seven things here. I guess that's up for debate. But um, in keeping with the theme of seven being perfect and complete, he says a number of things about Jesus Christ. In the first place, he says he is the faithful witness. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. He is the one who ultimately leads us to God. He is the one who declares to us the will of God and the way that we can come to him. He is the one who declares to us what is true, and he is faithful in doing that. And one of the things he bears witness to is in relation to the second thing. He is the firstborn of the dead. We know that Jesus Christ lived a life of perfect obedience to God and that he died. He was crucified But then we also know that God raised him from the dead. And in calling him the firstborn of the dead, it looks forward to that day when we also will be raised with Christ in glory. Jesus Christ was raised, and this gives us evidence of the fact that we also will be raised in the future. And so we can confidently look forward to that. In the third place, he is the ruler of kings of earth. And he is the ruler now. At present, when we look around the world, when we look around um, all the different circumstances and scenarios in our lives, it can be very easy to think that God isn't in control. Perhaps Christ isn't ruling. We have many causes for despair and anguish. 
Um, but the Bible is clear that Jesus Christ is presently the ruler of this world. Yes, there is coming a time where the nature of that rule will change, when it will come into more full completion. But even at present, Jesus Christ directs the course of all things, and he is sovereign over whatsoever comes to pass. He is the ruler of kings on earth. You know, nations wage wars, nations trade, and they do all these other kinds of things. But Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of earth. He is the one who directs their course and uses them as he wills. In the fourth place, he loves us. Jesus Christ loves us. He loves all those whom he bled and died for. And this is part of the reason that we know he loves us so much. He was willing to go to the cross to die for us, to take our sins upon himself that we might be forgiven. In the fifth place, he has freed us from our sins by his blood. As I was saying, he bled and died for us. And that's the only way of salvation. There is no other way that a person can be saved other than by trusting in Jesus Christ and then then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses that person from their sins that they might be right with God the Father. In the sixth place, he has made us into a kingdom and priests to God. You see, those who believe in Jesus Christ become knit together in a new community, in a new family, or as it says in this passage, a new kingdom. We are the kingdom of God, with Christ as the king, and us as citizens in this kingdom. Now this is not an earthly kingdom, it is a heavenly kingdom. It is not one with borders that we can see on earth. But nevertheless, it is powerful and it is at work in this world. And importantly, God says, we have been made priests to God. We are those who speak for God. We declare to the world at large what God says, what God says about salvation, what God says about history and what's happening in the world, and what God says about his son, Jesus Christ. And then finally, it says, glory and dominion belong to him forever and ever. You see, when Jesus Christ was raised again. He was seated at the right hand of God, and God gave him all authority and all power in heaven and on earth. And this authority and power will be his forevermore. He will rule forever and ever. And to him belongs the glory forever and ever. And it was at this point that I thought it would be a good time to take communion. Looking at Jesus Christ, looking at these seven things that it says about him, You see, when we come to the communion table, we remember our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, So at this point, I'd like to invite the ushers to come up and they can give out communion. Um, And I'd like to pray as well. Lord, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the faithful witness and that he declares to us the only way of salvation. I thank you that he is the firstborn from the dead and that you raised him to new life and that you have seated him at your right hand and given him all authority and power on earth and in heaven. Thank you that he loved us and that he was willing to free us from our sins by bleeding for us, by dying for us. And thank you for making us into a kingdom and a nation of priests for his glory, for your glory. And this because of what Jesus Christ has done. Lord, I pray that as we...
take communion, that we would look to Jesus Christ, that we would hope in him and trust in him, that we would put no confidence in our own efforts, um, in our own strengths, our own abilities, or our own talents, but that that we would trust completely in him, knowing that he is God and that he is able to save us completely from our sins. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for uh, giving us this ceremony, this symbol, um, to commemorate Jesus Christ and to show that we are a a separate community forged in his blood, forged by his blood. Um, Thank you that we can remember him and that we can look forward and eagerly anticipate the day when we shall be with him in glory. All right, so I'd like to move on to part two of what I have to say. Um, And at this point, I want to look at these seven letters. Um, So the final thing I'd like to observe about these verses is in verse four. John is writing all of this to seven churches that are in Asia. Um, And these are specific churches that existed at that time. Um, I got this map um, from Google, which I thought was quite handy, um, showing where these churches are. Um, If you're familiar with the geography of that area, you can see that this is in modern-day Turkey. Um, And all of these seven churches exist in a fairly small little area. Um, There are seven churches um, in Asia Minor. Uh, I got another map as well, uh, which gives a a different perspective. Um, You'd be forgiven for thinking um, from the previous map that this was a very flat area, but that's not the case. Um, The fact of the matter is, it's quite mountainous, um, and there's a lot of ups and a lot of downs. So travel between these places might not be as straightforward as you'd think. Uh, but there is a loop circuit that goes between them um, and that one could travel upon, and you'd go past all of these places. Um, so these are the seven churches that Jesus Christ sends a letter to in Revelation. Now... There's a number of things I want to observe about these letters. And as I said before, I don't want to trample on the toes of uh, the speakers who are going to come. Um, So I'm not going to say anything in particular about a particular letter. I'm going to leave it open. But I do want to make a few observations. Um, And in the first place, I do want to observe that these letters, as I said before, are written to churches that existed at the time Um, that Jesus gave these letters. These churches all had various problems, various things that were going well at the same time. And so Jesus addresses them all where they are at at that time. Um, And you may wonder why these seven churches um, couldn't have been eight churches, um, couldn't have been churches in different places. Um, And I suppose an answer to those questions, yes, it could have been different. But I think... In doing this, it communicates a powerful truth to us as, um, yeah, a powerful truth to us. Um, As I was talking about before, the number seven often represents fullness or completeness, and I think that's going on here as well. Jesus chooses seven churches, um, and the idea is that seven represents the whole church, the fullness of the church, the completeness of the church. And so 
by addressing it to seven churches, he's also communicating the point that these messages belong to the whole church, to all of the churches. Um, and I think that's in view um, with these letters. So despite the fact that these letters are addressed, addressed to particular churches at that time, these letters are also for all Christians throughout history, and they're for us today as well. They speak into our lives, and they speak truth to us. Now I want to observe that they all have a common structure as well. Um, they all have these points. Now of course, they're not all exactly the same. Some of them might miss a point, some of them might shift the order of these, but in general this is the rough structure that they follow. Um, and I'd like to briefly go over this, um, and I'm hoping that that's going to be valuable for you. Um, in the first place, all of these seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 have an address to a particular church. Um, in Revelation 2.1, you'll see it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. Um, and they're all addressed in that way, to the angel of such and such a church, um, which is a peculiar way of talking. We don't necessarily talk like that today. Um, and there is some debate what that means. Um, in Greek, the word angel could be translated angel or messenger, so angel or messenger. Um, and one group of thought is that this is just a, a way of referring to the pastor of a particular church. Um, and another group of thought that there's perhaps an angel that is looking in on each of these churches and it's addressed to him. Um, but ultimately what we know is that this is a letter for that particular church. Um, and that's what is important. What Jesus is communicating is for the church, for its people, um, and for its congregation. Uh, in the second place, each letter has an introduction of Jesus Christ. Um, following this, it'll say, write this. And I'll, I'd like to read a few of these introductions for you. They're all different. Um, in Revelation 2 verse 1, it says this, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In verse 8, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. In verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. In verse 18, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. In 3.1, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In 3.7, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. In verse 14, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. You see, all of these letters tell us that these are the words of Jesus Christ, but they tell us that in different ways. Now, I've read them to you, and I'm not going to comment further on them. I'm hoping that in the future, the speakers will comment on these things. Moving on from this, each of these letters has a statement regarding the condition of the church. And the statement usually begins with the words, I know. So Jesus will say in Revelation 2.1, I know your works. In 2.3, I know you are enduring patiently. Or in 2.9, I know your tribulation. And usually this is some form of compliment. He says, you know, your church has this going for you, and I know about this, and you're doing well in this area. But following this, he'll usually follow with the words, but I have this against you. And he'll point out this other area, this area where this church isn't doing so well. 
And the idea being that the church has something going for it and something not going for it. Now, in some cases, or in one case in particular, Jesus doesn't have anything positive to say about a church. Um, And we'll see that in the weeks to come. Um, But this is important for the structure of these letters, and it's important for us today. It's important when we look at our own lives that we can recognize and realize you know, that we can do well in certain areas and not well in other areas, and that there's room for improvement. And this should be an encouragement to us. It should be encouraging because Jesus Christ himself will provide what we lack. Moving on from that, Jesus will often give a verdict about the condition. And then he'll give a command to the church. He will say, I counsel you to do this, or I counsel you to do that, given this condition. And so when we're looking at these things, we can apply them to our own lives. When we see the kind of things in our lives that Jesus talks about in these letters, we can take these applications and these commands and we can say, you know, this is fitting for us as well, fitting in our modern times, and we can apply it to ourselves. And so as we move forward through the series, we can be looking forward to that um, from the future speakers. Finally, well, not finally, really. (laughs) He gives a general exhortation for all Christians. And that usually goes something like this. In Revelation 2.11, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, as I was saying before, these letters are to particular churches, but they're also for all Christians and for all churches. And that comes out clearly in these exhortations. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to these churches. And finally, he has a promise of a reward. And usually that goes to the one who conquers or to the one who overcomes. I will grant this or that. Um, For example, in 2.7, he says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the garden of God, the paradise of God. You see, this is the general structure for all these letters, and I'm hoping that by setting it out today, it'll provide some kind of context moving forward for the other speakers. And hopefully they won't have to cover the same ground that I've covered. Um, but that's something we can look forward to. Now, as I was saying, these letters are important because they provide us wisdom and guidance for today. Uh, they have continuing relevance because we are still like these ancient Christians. We are people just as they were people. We struggle with the same things they struggle with. We face the same trials and temptations. We're easily tempted to look to the world and the things of the world and to find our joy and comfort in them. We're easily tempted to look away from Christ and to lose our first love. We're easily tempted to give up when things get difficult. And that's the kinds of things that these churches were facing and the kind of thing that Jesus talks about. And so as we go through these letters, you know, look forward to hearing what Jesus Christ himself says about these things and look forward to seeing how we in our modern situation can address these kind of issues in our own lives and how we can be encouraged that Jesus Christ even sees the things we're doing well despite our flaws. For these are the words of Jesus Christ. These are the very words that he spoke to his churches. And I'd like to finish again with what was recorded in uh, chapter 1, verse 3. You know, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, 
You know, God has promised to bless us as we study these things in his word. To bless us as we listen, but also as we keep these things, as we put them into practice. You see, it's not enough merely to hear the word of God and do nothing about it. I mean, this is something that many of us struggle with. This is something I struggle with. You know, it's very easy to see, oh, this is what God says. This is what Jesus says. And to know that, and despite that, do otherwise. To be preoccupied with our own entertainments, with our own work, with our own things, and to forget the things of God. And so I want to encourage you. God has promised a blessing for those who look to his word, who are eager to obey that which he has said, who are eager to know what God said. And so I'd encourage you to be confident in that. Be confident that God is able to keep his promises and that when we look to his word, when we look to these letters with a sense of expectation and with a a spirit of humility and obedience, God will bless us in this. And this is our great hope, that God himself will bless us as we look to him, as we trust in him. Lord, thank you for these wonderful promises that you have in your word. Thank you for these letters that you have sent to your church, um, which give clear guidance and wisdom and even encouragement um, to your people as they go through various trials, various difficulties, um, and even as they have various successes. Lord, you have written to them clear um, and and wise words, words um, that are able to lead them, to give them wisdom and guidance as to how to walk in the world. And we pray that you would do the same with us, that you would show us how we can live our lives in a way that brings honor and glory and praise to your name. For this is what we desire. We desire to see your name lifted high and glorified in all the earth. We desire to see people in every place um, giving praise to you, being obedient to you, doing that which you ask, and running from sin. And so, Lord, we pray that you would accomplish all of these things in our lives um, as we look to your word and as we go through this series. Amen.